Well, good morning. Welcome again to Hope Presbyterian Church. Especially if you're a guest, I'm really glad that you're here. I am also a guest, so it's a little funny to welcome you to a church that's not mine. But we're really glad. I think I speak for everyone who does call this church their home when I say that they're really glad that you are here. Uh, I am the RUF campus minister at Trinity University in San Antonio. I'm getting to fill in this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know what RUF is, our denomination has a college campus ministry. Uh, We decided uh, about 40 years ago that the college campus the university context was such a strategic and unique context that students are in such a unique stage of life um, that we needed to invest in sending ministers to them. We didn't need to just hire college ministers at our churches and wait for college students to come to us. We needed to go to them. And so we've been doing that for over 40 years. We're now on over 150 campuses across the country, including Trinity and UTSA nearby. And uh, you guys are a partner church of RUF, so we're really grateful for you. Thank you for how you pray for us. Uh, thank you for giving financially and partnering with our ministry. If you ever want to hear more about how things are going or um, anything like that, I'd be happy to share that with you. Please grab me after the service. I'd love to tell you more about um, how things are going down at Trinity. So, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Mark chapter 1. And it's also in your bulletin printed out there. You guys have just started a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark is a great place to start if you are investigating the claims of Christianity. Maybe if you're back in church for the first time in a while. You actually came at a really good time. Uh, Mark is a great place for people who are checking out the claims of Jesus. Because Mark is interested in answering the question, Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what do we do with that? Who is Jesus? What did He come to do? And what do we do with that? And this morning, we just have a really short passage. It's actually verses 14 and 15. And this is where Jesus begins His ministry. It's actually the first words that we hear out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And He starts with good news. If you need to know anything else about Jesus, when He's kicking things off, He starts with good news. So let me pray for us and ask God to join us by His Spirit, and then we'll uh, turn our attention to the reading of His Word. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do pray now that You would rend the heavens and come down. You have promised that when two or more of us are gathered in Your name, as we are this morning, uh, that You'll be with us. And so we would ask that You would keep that promise. Would You be here this morning? God, we don't need uh, mere advice. We don't need a a pep talk. We need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would send your spirit to open up your word to us, to show us Jesus, who he was and is, and what that means for us, and what you are calling us to do in response. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Uh, I was thinking, my wife and I watched uh, the show The West Wing. Any West Wing fans? I feel like last time I was here, I started with a TV show. I'm worried you guys are going to think I don't do anything but watch TV. I promise I have other hobbies. But we were watching The West Wing last year and uh, got really into it. And there was this one season where they were talking about the re-election of Jed Bartlett, the main character who's the president in that show. And they were talking about what are we going to do with the first hundred days? 
Uh, and they kept joking about how there's, that's kind of an arbitrary number, 100 days. And it is when you think about it. It's one of those things that the news kind of taps us into, that we pay attention to. What is this new president or this re-elected president going to do with the first 100 days of their presidency? Right? Because first things matter. What you do to begin something, the first actions, the first words, really matter. In our passage this morning, we have the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He's kicking off. You may even have the heading in your Bible above this section that says, Jesus begins His ministry, which is exactly right. But I wonder if what follows will catch you by surprise like it did me. Because you hear the words, Jesus begins His ministry, and you think, okay, here we go. Here come the fireworks. It's kind of that feeling when you, you know, when you're riding a roller coaster and it's got that slow up, and you get to the top and it starts to pull. That feels like where we are. Okay, Jesus is about to start. He's about to begin his ministry. What's he going to do? And yet, as we read, Jesus doesn't do anything in these first two verses. There's no healing. There's no casting out of demons. All of that comes later. To start his ministry, Jesus does something kind of boring. He preaches a sermon. Uh, and because Jesus is perfect and loving and good, it's a really short sermon. I don't know if you caught that. Just two sentences. I'm not as good or as loving as Jesus, so mine's going to take a little bit longer. But um, it's a sermon. That's how Jesus starts. He starts with a message, a proclamation, a proclamation, and it is good news. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. All of the rest of the Gospel of Mark, as y'all go through this in the coming weeks, you're going to realize that Mark wants us to keep keep asking the questions, who is Jesus and what does that have to do with me? But here at the very beginning, he wants us to see how Jesus answers those questions. How does Jesus answer the question, who is he and what does he come to do? Everything that Jesus is going to do, the rest of the Gospel, is in service to this message that he proclaims. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus' sermon, because Jesus was a great Presbyterian minister. It has three points. Uh, So that's what we're going to do this morning. The three points of Jesus' sermon. Time is up. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Time is up. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. So let's start with that first point. Time is up. Mark begins by telling us that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. Which raises the question, perhaps for, even for you this morning, what does gospel mean? Uh, I think that's a Christian word, a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, there's gospel music. These first few books of the New Testament are called gospels. And it's one of those that if you've grown up in the church, you can kind of start to just assume that you know what it means, even if you've never really thought about it. The literal meaning of the word is just good news. Good news. And while our minds run straight to spiritual things, in the first century, Jesus' audience, their mind would have gone to political and historical realities. Their mind would not have been on spiritual things, but on political things. And the reason for that is because gospel was not something that Jesus or the disciples invented. Uh, Gospel actually had a context there in the first century. They were life-changing announcements. They usually revolved around victories in battle or a change of leadership or just something earth-shattering. Something significant happened uh, that, that meant good news for the people who heard about it. We actually have an inscription from the first century, uh, a document that opens like this. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It actually sounds a lot like how Mark started this book, doesn't it? The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And when that document was first inscribed, it carried with it the message, this life-altering, history-making message, this world-changing news that Caesar Augustus is on the throne. 
And so your life, whoever you are, has changed. And that was supposed to be something you celebrated and rejoiced over, at least from the perspective of the Romans, right? They just conquered you. This is great news. We've conquered you. You're, you're a Roman citizen now. Rejoice. Mark has something similar in mind as he begins this gospel of Jesus. As he writes about Jesus coming into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, this is news that changes everything. There's a new king. There's a new king on the throne. And you are one of his citizens now. Are you going to live under his rule, or are you going to be in rebellion? So gospel is good news, but the question remains, good news about what? Good news about what? What is this good news? Mark calls this gospel uh, the gospel of God, and right as we're about to ask, okay, gospel of God, what does that mean? He answers by telling us what Jesus said. Look back at the text with me, if you will. He says, this is what Jesus says, proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the first aspect of the good news is that the time is fulfilled. Jesus is saying, the time, time's up. Time is up. What does that mean? Jesus is saying that in God's perfect timing, that He is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Paul makes a similar point in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 4.4, he writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in God's perfect and sovereign timing, Jesus has come to redeem His people, the King that they had all been waiting for. And yet you can probably imagine that from certain perspectives, the timing doesn't look great at all. There's a little throwaway detail that Mark puts in here. You're going to notice as y'all continue to go through Mark, Mark just keeps moving. The whole, throughout the book of Mark, there's, he's constantly saying, immediately this, then that, then that. He wastes no words. And so in verse 14, when he says, now after John was arrested, that's not a throwaway detail. He's not just mentioning that as a point of interest. He's trying to give you some context. Uh, he's trying to say, think about what John the Baptist is going through here. As, as he's been arrested and is ultimately going to be killed for the message that he preached, that the king was coming, that Jesus was coming, you should repent. You can imagine what John must be thinking. right? As Jesus says the time is fulfilled, man, could have fulfilled it a little faster, right? Before I got arrested, time is fulfilled, I'm in prison, Jesus. What does that mean for me? If you're the king, what are you going to do about that? Or think about the Jews to whom Jesus is preaching. They're under Roman occupation. right? They don't don't have sovereignty within their own country, this land of their ancestors. They are being ruled by an oppressive people. It's been hundreds of years since they were conquered by Babylon and stripped of their power. They've been waiting on a Messiah for thousands of years, the one that God promised to Abraham and to David. God's timing uh, is not our timing. I think that's part of what we need to pull out of this moment. That God's timing is not our timing. As Jesus proclaimed, the time is fulfilled, there had to be people sitting there who thought, Is it? Is this, is the, you're it? You're what God sent us? God's timing is not our timing. He does things in ways and at times that often make no sense to us. Uh, that run completely counter to how we would do things. I love that Mark throws in that detail about John getting arrested. It's almost as if he's hinting at, yes, the perfect timing has come, but it's not going to feel that way to everyone. We're not always going to be able to say, yes, I feel like that's true. It's not going to look how you thought that it would look. 
Uh, some of you may remember, I don't expect you to, but you may remember the last time I was here was October. My wife was expecting uh, our first son. She's actually here. Cooper's here as well. He's about uh, ten and a half weeks old now. But he was born on October uh, 24th. And I think the thing that sticks, sticks with me the most from the night that he was born is how after all those months of waiting, right, we had done all these birthing classes and we had prepared and we had gotten a nursery ready and done all this thing, uh, all this praying, waiting for him to get here. It was those last few hours before he was born that felt like the longest. That last night as we were waiting for him to get there felt like longer than the previous nine months combined. Cooper was born in the middle of the night, about 3.30 in the morning. And I just remember as we were sitting there, as Mary was in labor, uh, I was looking at her at one point, and another contraction was coming on. And she was just in so much pain. Um, you know, you women who do this are just, I mean, this is incredible. Um, but she was in pain, as, as you can imagine. And as I was seeing it and thinking it, I was thinking about what people always tell you, which is like, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. And I knew that. I knew that that was true. And at the same time, I just thought, Lord, this is too much. This is too hard. Uh, It's not fair. It's not fair that she should have to suffer this much. But I knew in my head that it was almost over. I knew that on the other end of this pain was going to be our baby boy. right? This boy that we had prayed for, that we already loved, that we had a name for. Um, All of these things, all these great things were coming just on the other side, just a couple hours away. But even knowing that, in the middle of Mary's labor, I couldn't help but think, yeah, but right now it's too much. This is too much to ask of us. Uh, Some of you are in the middle of very trying seasons right now. Uh, you are going through some hard things. Uh, perhaps for some of you, it's, uh, it's cancer. Cancer is back. There's, you, maybe you've beaten it before and now it's back. And you don't know this time whether you've got the gas in, in the tank to face it down again. Some of you, uh, your marriage is on the rocks. Again. And you can't imagine how you are going to come out the other side of this thing still married. How is that going to happen again? Some of you have got children that are wandering. They're so far down the road of their own destruction that you really don't see a way back for them. Some of you have had another miscarriage and every friend you know is pregnant or having perfect and healthy and beautiful babies and you can't understand why God is doing this to you. And in your head, perhaps you know that God is good and trustworthy and faithful and that we have resurrection hope and that everything sad is going to be made right one day because of Jesus. And yes and amen, that is true. And you say things like, okay, whatever God ordains is right. We trust Him. I know that. But on the inside, in the middle of this pain, all we're trying not to scream is, what are you doing, God? What are you doing to us? Do you not know that you're killing us? How much more can one person take? Do you not care? Let me ask you this. Do you trust God enough to be honest with Him about your pain? Do you trust God enough to be honest with Him about what you're going through and how you feel about what you're going through? To ask The reason I ask that is because the Bible is full of God's people doing exactly that. Listen to this from Psalm 13. This is what the psalmist writes here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have an arrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Or think about John the Baptist himself. Uh, Two of the other Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, record that after John goes to prison, while he's sitting there, he hears about everything that Jesus is doing. All of these different deeds that he's accomplishing. And he starts to have questions about who Jesus really is. And so he sends some of his followers to ask Jesus, Are you the one to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? It's kind of a pointed question from John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. The one who shouted, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, who when his when Mary, the Virgin Mary, as she was pregnant with Jesus, when she drew near to John the Baptist's mother, when he was in the womb, jumped out for joy that the Messiah was coming. That John sends messengers to Jesus because he doubts. He doubts that Jesus is who he says he is. Or perhaps think of Jesus himself. Jesus hanging on the cross, shouting out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows that the Father is going to raise him from the dead. In three days, he's prophesied exactly that to his disciples. He knew the road he had to take and he knows what stands on the other side. Resurrection, joy. But that does not stop him from expressing his pain in the moment. Uh, Of course, many of you will know that those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are not original to Jesus. He's quoting scripture there. He's quoting Psalm 22. In his pain and in his agony and suffering, Jesus is quoting scripture. And the reason that he's doing that is because that is exactly the kind of God that we have. The kind who not only lets us give full vent to our suffering, to our pain, to our anguish, but actually gives us the language in his word to do it. God actually gives us the words to use as we cry out to him in suffering. Jesus was the kind of Savior who when John the Baptist sent those same messengers to say, are you him? Are you the one we were supposed to be looking for? Jesus responds to him in love and compassion and says, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then as those messengers go away, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's what our God does when we cry out to him, when we doubt, when we go to him. He gives us language to use. He tells us that he loves us. He receives us. Uh, We have the kind of God who's so faithful that the psalmist in Psalm 13, the one that began, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Ends that psalm by saying this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The reason that I bring all of this up, and what it has to do with Mark chapter 1, and Jesus beginning his ministry, is that as Jesus says, the time is up, The time is fulfilled. This timing is perfect. That does not mean that this timing is easy for us. God is trustworthy. His timing is perfect. Everything that he ordains is right. And that does not mean that it is easy. Do you trust God enough to be honest with your pain? We do not have some petty heavenly tyrant who cannot stand to be questioned. 
God is not standing up in heaven when you come to him with your grief and saying, how dare you? How dare you come to me with this? I've given you everything out of my right hand. How dare you come to me and question me? Our God receives us. He gives us the words to use. He loves us. His timing is perfect, but it is not easy. Jesus begins there. The time has been fulfilled. Even though it may not look like it, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. This is not going to look like what you think it is. But God's timing is perfect. And what is it that comes out of this timing? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' first point is that the time is up. But his second point is that the kingdom is here. There is good news. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Okay, I want you to think about Jesus' context here for a second. He's speaking to Jews, whose scripture is the Old Testament. And so they've got, in the back of their minds, the entire story of the Old Testament as Jesus is talking here. So think about what they would think about. They would think about in Genesis, God creates his people to exist in perfect relationship with one another and with him because he's their king. And as we submit to his rule, everything goes great. And of course, immediately, page 3 of the Bible, we stop doing that. We turn away from him. We decide we want to be king. We'd like to rule. Then God says, okay, but I'm not going to let it be like that forever. One day I will come. One day a king will come. He makes a covenant with Abraham, promising that one day one of his descendants, one of his children, would bring a blessing to the nations. And then, over and over again, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, through Moses, through David, through the prophets, God repeats and expands on that promise. A Savior is coming. A Messiah is coming. My kingdom is coming. And so as Jesus talks about the kingdom, that's what they've got in the back of their minds. Probably the most explicit reference from the Old Testament to this would be in Isaiah chapter 52. I just want to read you a couple verses of this and see if you hear any echoes of what Jesus is talking about here. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That poem is set right after Babylon destroys Jerusalem. Most of the city of Jerusalem is sent into exile. And Isaiah makes clear throughout his prophecy, this is Jerusalem's fault. Uh, They brought this on themselves. It's a mess of their own making. They turned away from God. They corrupted themselves. And this was the price that they had to pay. But in the poem, a watchman sitting on the city wall of Jerusalem, and he sees a messenger coming from the hills outside of Jerusalem who brings good news. This messenger says, Your God still reigns. Whatever it looks like, despite your failure, the Lord is going to come back to the city and rule his people again and bring peace. And so when Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom is at hand, that's what they're imagining. That is what they have in mind. And of course, because they've had a couple hundred years and they're waiting and they're tired of being oppressed by the Romans, this has also taken on a very particular geopolitical bent. Because for them, they're also thinking, and God's going to kick out the Romans. And we get Jerusalem back. And we get to be in charge of our land and our country again. But Jesus has a very different kind of kingdom, doesn't he? The rest of the Gospel of Mark is going to point this out. He's not simply here to restore Israel. 
Jesus is not here simply to bring that back. He's here to restore all of creation. The rest of the Gospel of Mark shows what kind of king Jesus is and what kind of kingdom he is bringing. What goes on? He heals the sick. He beats back the powers of darkness. Those who have been taken over by demons and spiritual forces of darkness are healed. He's going to banish the effects of sin and then he's going to forgive the sins themselves. That is the kind of king that Jesus is. That is the kingdom that he is bringing. He's not here to kill his enemies. He's here to rescue them. It's a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. So Jesus says the time is up, even if it doesn't look like it. The kingdom is at hand, and so that has massive implications. Jesus gives them something to do, a point, something, a way to respond. He, gives, he makes one final point, repent and believe. These are the implications. If this is true, if the time is up, if God's promise is finally coming to pass, if the kingdom really is at hand, then there's a so what here. Okay, so what, Jesus? What does that mean? It means that you have to repent. It means that you have to believe. I mentioned earlier the Gospel of Caesar Augustus, which is an announcement uh, usually made to a people that Rome had conquered. And it was supposed to be good news. You're a Roman citizen now with all the rights and privileges that 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 entails. And of course, subtly underneath that, all of the duties, right? You have to pay taxes and you have to bow the knee to Caesar. And there's a similar element to Jesus' Gospel pronouncement. Time is up. The king is here. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to submit to his rule? Or are you going to try to rebel? Um, Your life has to change. And Jesus tells us how that has to happen. We have to repent and believe. Repent, again, is another Christian word that gets thrown around a lot. But what Jesus means by that is turn away from your self-centered way of living, the old way of living, and live in light of the fact that he has come. Live in a way that pleases God. Which sounds really good if we could do that on our own, but then we wouldn't need Jesus, would we? If you're here this morning and you're doing the math, you're kind of like, wait, I thought we couldn't do that. And you're exactly right. Which is why Jesus says, repent and believe. Not repent, then believe. Repent and believe. These are things that go together. Believe what? He says, believe the gospel. Believe in the gospel. This good news that Jesus has come in the flesh. He has come to live this perfect life that we could not live. That He has come to die the death for our self-centered living that we should have died. As a punishment for our sins. That He rose again from the dead so that anyone that believes in Him can be reconciled to God. Jesus says that's what you do. When the King comes, this is what it looks like to live under His rule. You repent and you believe. Those two have to go together. Repentance and belief have to go together. Jesus is making one point there, not two. That's a one-step action. Because you cannot repent without believing. And you can't believe without repenting. They go hand in hand together. That's why I said, notice that he says it's repent. It's not repent, then believe. It's repent and believe. Repent, then believe is how most of us approach God, I think. Uh, Most of us approach God that way. We think, okay, I, I know that I haven't lived perfectly. I need to get it together. It's the new year. I'm going to make some New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do one of those read through the Bible in a year programs. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to bake bread for some people. I don't know what your New Year's resolutions are, right? But you're going to get your life together. I'm going to get it in order. And then God will love me and accept me. God will be proud of me. Uh, He will welcome me back in. But the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of what Jesus has come to declare, is that that doesn't work. 
If we could get our lives in order and make God accept us, we wouldn't need this gospel. We wouldn't need this good news. The truth is that left to ourselves, we make a bigger mess of things, of our sin. We're like the kids who, uh, you know, they spill something on the ground and you like don't want them to clean it up, right? Because you know how this is going to go. The kids spill it and they're just going to spread it around. It's just going to get deeper into the carpet. They're just going to make a deeper mess of things. It's just going to get worse. Once they make the mess, you're like, well, just get out of here. Let me take care of this because you're just going to make it worse. That is us when we are trying to repent without believing. We're like, okay, God, I know I, know I messed up, but I'm going to get this together. This time I'm going to get it right. And God is saying, no, you're not. Get out of the way. Let me take care of this. Paul tells us that that order is really important in Romans 2. He says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. You cannot convince God to love you or be more kind to you than He is already disposed to be. Your God has moved to you while you were exactly like you are right now. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's no, there's no repenting then believing. It's repent, we repent in light of the goodness that we believe. That's Jesus' call to you this morning. The time is up. The King is here. And so now life changes. What are you going to do with that? If you're not a Christian here this morning, that really is the central claim that Jesus is going to make. The next few chapters throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to continue pounding this. The King is here. He's bringing healing to the sick. He's bringing sight to the blind. He is casting out the powers of darkness. Do you want to be with Him or do you want to be against Him? And that really is what's put in front of you this morning. You cannot serve two masters. You can't be in charge of yourself and follow Jesus. You can't be king and him be king. So what are you going to do this morning? What are you going to do? Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to follow yourself? Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great uh, preacher in the last century and he uses this illustration of a king who goes into battle. And he imagines this king who goes into battle against an invading army. They're coming in. He goes out to defend his land. And he says if the king goes and defeats that army, he sends back messengers to the capital. And they go back and they have this message of great joy. We've won. We've beat back the enemy. They're not going to come. We have won the day. They've been defeated and we are safe. Let's all rejoice and live in peace that has been achieved for us. But if the king doesn't defeat the enemy, if he doesn't defeat the invading army and the enemy breaks through the lines, the king sends messengers back and they they don't have good news. It sounds a little different, doesn't it? He says, put archers on the wall. Raise the drawbridge. Do the best you can. Fight for your lives. We couldn't stop them. We couldn't stop them. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that every other religion besides Christianity sends military advisors to the people. Fight for your life. We couldn't stop it. If you want to achieve salvation, you've got to fight. Every other religion sending advice. Here are the rites. Here are the rituals. Here's the transformation uh, of consciousness or whatever. Here are the laws, the regulations that you have to follow. And fight for your life. And good luck. Because the enemy is winning. The gospel is different. What Jesus comes to say is different. The gospel is news. It's an announcement. The enemy has been beaten back. The enemy has lost. I have won... And it's an announcement of what's been done for you. Not an invitation for you to do anything. But believe. But believe. Live in light of that. Live in light of that truth. And so let me ask you this morning. What are you going to do with what Jesus says? Those of you who are Christians, who have believed, 
Has your life truly changed? Is the gospel truly good news that was radical in your life? Has it changed everything about it? Has the trajectory of who you are changed because of Jesus? And for those of you who are not Christians this morning, would you like it to? Would you like the trajectory of your life to change for the better? Would you like to follow Jesus? I hope you would this morning. Let me pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your perfect timing, the timing that doesn't make sense to us so often, you sent Jesus. You sent him to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we should have. God, and on the third day you rose him up again to let us know that it was all accomplished. The enemy has been defeated. We need fear no more. We can live in peace. Pray this morning that you would help us to repent and believe that truth. That we would not just try to do behavior modification to make ourselves a little bit better, to clean ourselves up, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that we really would live in light of the fact that you have done everything. That you have sent your spirit to live in us, that you've united us to Christ, that we really can follow you now because you have defeated our enemies and called us to yourself. Pray for those who are searching this morning, those who do not know you, that you would give them clarity, God. If you really are there, would you open their eyes to see you and to know you? For those of us who are following you, Lord, um, I pray that you would call us again to yourself. Would you help us to repent and go on repenting and to believe and go on believing? Would we come back again to this good news and believe that you really are a God who loves us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second moment.